Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. All right, good morning, good morning. Are we ready for the Super Bowl preaching? You know, pregame speeches use words to motivate people to action. And the Bible is made up of over 750,000 words that make up the Word of God. But over 750,000 words all point to the Word, and the Word has a name, and it's the name above every name, Jesus Christ. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you'll go ahead and get it out, turn to your table of contents. And you'll see in your table of contents are the books of the Bible that make up the Word of God. The Word of God points to the Word of God, and the Word of God has a name, and it's the name above every name. It's the name who? Jesus. You got 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, and they all point to Jesus. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is Moses' voice. In Joshua, he is salvation's choice. In Judges, he's the lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In 1st and 2nd Kings of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, he is sovereign. In Ezra, he's the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls and lives. In Esther, he's Mordecai's courage. In Job, he's the timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he's our morning song. In Proverbs, he's wisdom's cry. In Ecclesiastes, he's the time and the season. In the Song of Solomon, he's the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, he is the cry for Israel. In Ezekiel, he's the call from sin. In Daniel, he's the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, he's forever faithful. In Joel, he's the spirit's power. In He's the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, he's the Lord, our Savior. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, he's the promise of peace. In Nahum, he's our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk, in Zephaniah, he's pleading for revival. In Haggai, he restores a lost heritage. In Zechariah, he's our fountain. In Malachi, he's the sun of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is God, man, Messiah. In the book of Acts, he's the spirit. His spirit is the fire from heaven. In Romans, he's the grace of God. First and second Corinthians, he's the power of love. In Galatians, he's freedom from the curse of sin. In Ephesians, he's our glorious treasure. In Philippians, he's the servant's heart. In Colossians, he's the second person of the Godhead Trinity. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he's our coming king. In 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus and Philemon, he's our mediator and our faithful pastor. In Hebrews, he's the everlasting covenant. In James, he's the one who heals the sick. In 1st and 2nd Peter, he is our shepherd. In 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Jude, he's the lover coming for his bride. In church, in Revelation, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no one 
like our Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the Great I Am. He is Alpha. He is Omega. He is God. He is Savior. And he is better than anything the world has to offer. See, friends, hope has a name. Joy has a name. Love has a name. Peace has a name. The word has a name, and it's the name above every other name. It's the name Jesus Christ. And listen, friends, if you've been bought by the blood of Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit of God, you are victorious because Jesus is victorious. Yeah. The timer for quarter one starts now. Who are you? Who are you? Seems like an easy question. If anyone should know who you are, it should be you, right? But who are you? For instance, my name is Titus Brown. I'm from Mobile, Alabama, but I live in Dallas, Texas, right? But I'm not talking about that. I want to go deeper. Who are you? What motivates you to be who you are? Is it your sense of fear? Does your sense of fear dictate who you are? Maybe, maybe it's your failures. Your failures may dictate who you are. Or maybe people's opinion of you is what gives you your identity. A lot of things can give us our identity. Being a, being a mom can give you your identity. A sense of a, a certain level of success can give us our identity. You know, even being a Swifty today can give people their identity, <laughs> right? But I want to let you know that there are a lot of things that can give us our identity, but our identity is found in one place, and that's God's Word. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> Boom! And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You know, fear means that we take God seriously, right? That we see God when we approach him with this sense of reverence and awe, right? We see God, we see God he sees, we, we trust God for his word. Okay, have you ever told your kids to do something and they responded with, why? And what is our response? Because I said so, right? That's God. <laughs> we are who we are because of God's word. Our identity is found in him. When we view God for who he is, we can trust what his word says. And we, we learn that we are not the sum of our fears. We are not the sum of our failures. We are not somebody's opinion or a certain level of success. We are who God says we are. You see, the word gives us our identity, which what we learn from God's word is we see how God sees us. Okay, and this is how he sees you. He sees you as being fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalms 139. That means that you are in awesome wonder. God took his time when he created you. And I like me a good old-timey word, right? And the old-timey word that this referred to is this word called skillfully rocked, right? That means that you were skillfully created. God took his time when he shaped and he molded you, right? <laughs> you guys, God said that you are amazing. He sees you as his treasured possession. Deut Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 12. God, you know, God created everything, and he created some awesome stuff. The sun, the stars, the moon, every shape in a Lucky Charms box, right? <laughs> but he considers you to be his prized possession. You have the worldview of how you may see yourself, but you have God's view of how you may see yourself. 
the world says, hey, it's something you got to do in order to be pleasing. It's something you got to have in order to be pleasing. God said, no, I already created you that way. You're already pleasing to me. You're my prized possession. And I don't know about you, but the, um, <laughs> they would never judge the book by the movie, all right? <laughs> all right. He sees you as his chosen. Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 12. God has elected you from the beginning of time to receive salvation. That means you have always been a part of God's plan. You have always been a part of his plan to send his son Jesus to take your place and to die for you. That's how God sees you. He sees you as his chosen. He also knew that he would rise his son up from the third, on the third day and, and deliver a world that really needed it. You are God's chosen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, oh, he also sees you as, as new. I want, he sees you as new. And like, he sees you like a new pair of J's fresh out the box new. Second Corinthians 5, 17. It says, if therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. <laughs> you are not the person that you once were. Whatever you may be holding on to from your past, whatever you think defines you, you got to let it go. You got to let it go, right? Because you are no longer defined by your failures. You are no longer defined by what someone thinks of you. You are defined by what God thinks of you and what he delivered you from, all right? Don't ever go back. We have been delivered. It's nothing to go back to. He sees us as having the keys to the kingdom. Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 through 19. God allows us to be a part of this great plan for salvation. And one thing you have to understand, we can't set the captive free if we don't know Jesus. We can't set the captive free if we don't know Jesus. We are on mission. God has called us as a church to be on mission. And that's what we do. You know, I like programs like this, that when we all get together, and we're all on the same sheet of music. And it, it, but at the end of the day, we're still on mission. We got to go out. We're God's chosen. And on being God's chosen, we're on mission. You know, our identity is made perfect in Jesus. Jesus gave us salvation, and we receive salvation through Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. Right? We are the means by which the message is spread. God did not just give us keys to any door. He gave us keys to the kingdom. And that is a reason to celebrate. You have keys to the kingdom of God. You know, there's always going to be a time when we just don't feel our worth. We just don't feel it. We don't feel like it's there. But I want to assure you it is there. Your salvation is secure. There's going to be times when you feel like the No matter how hard, um, no matter how you see yourself or even how people see you, God sees you different. He sees you as his created. He sees you as his love. He sees you different. He sees you as the one he sent his son to die for. He sees you different. We find our identity in who God says we are. Okay? So to answer the question, who are you? You are who 
God says you are. And without further ado, the timer for quarter two starts now. Good job, guys. How are you today? Six and a half minutes. <laughs> How are you today, church? Aren't you glad to be here, man? It's so good to see you. Um, let me ask you that question again a different way. How are you today, really? You see, some of us walked in, and we walked in excited, and I'm excited to be here, but if we're not careful, sometimes the excitement can mask something else. The truth is, some of us today walked in stressed. Your life is out of control. There are things right now that are happening in your life that you can't get a grip on, and you are stressed. Some of you came in anxious. Anxiety is just worrying about the things that are in the future that are unknown, that you can't control, that you don't know. And maybe you walked in full of anxiety, or maybe this morning you walked in overwhelmed. That there are circumstances that are beyond your control that are completely out of control. And maybe you walked in broken this morning. Maybe you walked in wounded. Maybe you walked in abused. Maybe you walked in like you feel like you're ripped in half. And for some of you, you're like, Wes, this is a depressing second quarter. And you're like, that's not true for me today. Here's what I know about life. If it's not true for you today, it might be true for you tomorrow. And in those moments, the world is going to throw a bunch of options at you. The world is going to throw options like alcohol and pornography and medication and success and popularity and money and drugs and sex. And they're going to throw all this stuff at you. And none of it works. You see, even the secular world would tell you that it doesn't work. The secular world will tell you that alcoholism leads to other issues. There are guys that have won the actual Super Bowl. And they have gotten to the top of the successful ladder in their sport. And when they got there, they said, there's nothing here. And what's interesting is that the secular world is starting to echo what the Bible told us long ago. That the only source of comfort that we have is the word of God. See, the enemy, I don't know if you know this, but if you're a believer in Christ, you have an enemy. His name's Satan. He's real. And he's fighting against you. And he desperately wants you to chase comfort with your life. He just wants you to chase after comfort and more comfort and more comfort. And all of those things end up empty. So we have to be faced with this question. Where do we run when things get uncomfortable? See, I was faced with this question about 10 days ago. Three weeks ago, I had one of the best days of my life. I walked into a doctor's office with my wife and I saw the heartbeat of baby Barnett. And I was pumped and I was excited. I was pumped, I was thrilled. And then 10 days ago, I walked into the same doctor's office, the same room and heard these words. I'm sorry, your baby no longer has a heartbeat. And baby Barnett in that moment was fully healed and fully known by the creator of the universe. And I'm so excited about that. But can I, can I tell you something? In that moment, I was grateful for a family who raised me to chase Jesus. I was grateful for a family that taught Caitlin to chase Jesus. I was grateful for a church family who rallied around us and got behind us and actually believed that the word of God changes our comfort. I love that we believe that because church struggles are real. Hurt is real. 
Life is real. Life is hard. And I'm just here to tell you, I've had the hardest week of my life. And there is no day like today that I actually believe that the word of God is true. Amen. That Jesus changes our comfort. And he has a message for us in the middle of our discomfort. And it's this, that the only one that can hold the weight and pain of our life is Jesus. He is the only one. So today we've got to move from chasing the temporary to trusting the eternal. You see, Proverbs 30 verse 5 says this, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. It says every word, every word in this book is flawless. Every word, read it, study it, memorize it. I was telling JD this week, like, the most comforting words I've heard in the last 10 days are the ones that were hidden in my heart that God spoke thousands of years ago. Yeah. Like it is powerful. And then it's, yes, come on. And then it says, we say this, it says that it's a refuge, which means a flea for protection. It means trust. It means a dependence on God. It means that when you can't see the future, you say, come on Christmas, God is coming and he's here with us. He's in it with us. You see, we have to change our perspective. And if we want to change our perspective, we need to latch on to two truths about the word of God. In Psalm 119, it says this, we've got to move from chasing the temporary to trusting the eternal. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. See the Hebrew word here for lamp, lamp and light, they sound like the same, but they're not. Lamp is the word they would use to describe the presence of God. It's the fire by night in Exodus. It's the presence of God that comes alongside us and combats isolation because isolation is a primary tactic of the enemy. Believer, God is with you. He is in it with you. His presence is constant and unchanging. You don't walk alone, but you don't just have the presence of God. It says you have the light, which is God's power over the darkness. It's the, it's, uh, yeah, I did it again. Um, so it's God's power over the darkness. It's Genesis 1. Let there be light. And there was light. And it's God showing his power over darkness, over sin. And thank you, Jesus, his power over death. You see, he has power. And when you walk in the presence and the power of God, you begin to see that he can change your comfort. You see, church, there are unknown roads ahead. There are unknown hurts, there are unknown sorrows, unknown challenges, brokenness, shame, embarrassment, guilt. And no matter what your circumstance is, can I tell you, the best place and safest place you can be is in the center of the will of God. Yeah. Yeah. See, in 1837, there was a man named Horatio Spatford, and he had just lost his four daughters in a shipwreck over the Atlantic. And he wrote a song. And it's a song that comforts us and reminds us that when peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. The timer for quarter three starts now. John is the last of the living original disciples. But at the time that he, re he writes 1 John, it's been 60 years. It's been 60 years since Easter. It's been six decades of the Christian faith being lived out. A lot has happened at this time. He was the last one that was there when Jesus walked on water. He was the last one when he fed the 5,000 with a little boy's lunchable. He was the last one that saw demons cast into pigs. And he said, I need you to know how real this is because it's personal. 
And so he starts off 1 John. He says, what was from the beginning, what we heard, what we saw with our eyes, what we touched concerning the word of life. The word of life was a person that appeared and walked among them, and they knew him. And he says, I've got to walk with him. I want you to learn how to walk with him. And walking is going to imply progress for us. It's a change of direction. I was walking one direction, and I'm going to walk the other, and I'm going to gain ground. And he says what this looks like. He says we need to walk in light. God is light. There is no darkness in him. He says, listen, if we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we're liars. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So what does it mean to walk in darkness? You cannot say you walk with God and then consistently do the things God did not say to do. You cannot walk in disobedience in your marriage and then claim to have a marriage that is walking in light. You cannot walk in the the light and yet do the things of darkness, which is why we need to know the word of God so that we can walk in light. What does it mean to walk in light? Walk in light means to be pure and useful, to actually make ground and take ground, to do the things that God has called us to do. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, the one who remains in him walks as he walked. Does that mean that we walk in sinless perfection? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, three times in the first chapter, he's going to say, you're not perfect. But instead, there is progress. It's not perfection, it's progress. And here's a key to know whether or not you're making that progress. See, walking implies progress, but it also implies activity. There's a direction you're going to go. There's a distance you're going to try to cover. There's a way you're trying to walk. And he says the way that looks is to walk in love. How many of you guys can raise your hand and say, there are some people that are hard to love? If you're sitting next to them, don't elbow them or nothing, okay? It can be hard to love people. We want to love people that look like us, that agree with us, but we are called to love others. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So here's a test for your Christian faith. This is going to get challenging. Seven times he's going to say you have to walk in love. Here's the hard question you have to ask. Answer, he says in verse 8, those who do not love do not know God because God is love. So if you are unwilling to walk in love, then you have to begin to question whether or not you have a relationship with God at all. Because his love is what makes you capable of this love. See, here's the key. Because some people are going, man, how can I do that? It's easy. You're not the source. See, if you think you're the source of light and love, you're going to mess up everything all the time. If you're going, well, Jason, I'm going to be light. I'm somehow going to muster up all the wattage and all the voltage I need in order to shine a great light. Can I tell you something? You ain't that bright. You're going to burn out real quick. He doesn't actually ask you to be light. You're simply a lens. You're a lens that's going to focus that light in the direction that he's asking you to go. You're not the source. You go, Jason, how do I love people? Again, you're not the source. Some people go, Jason, I can't love that person. Do you understand what they did to me? Jason, I can't forgive that person. Do you understand the damage they've done to me? And I'll say, I understand. He's not asking you to love them with your love. He's asking you to love them with his. He's asking you to be a conduit of the great, merciful, gracious, almighty God and the love that he has for people. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. If you're going, well, Jason, love feels like a burden to me when I think about certain people, then maybe that's an indication that you're trying to be the source. 
But can I tell you something, church, and I love you and I love being your pastor. It's okay. It's a balloon. It's okay. Listen, what I love about this and what I want you to understand is that Jason Collins' love can't change anybody. I don't need you anchored to my love, although I love you very much. We want every person here anchored to the love of Jesus Christ. It's so important that we understand this because he ends his letter by saying, this is the victory that has conquered the world. How does Christianity win? How do we win with injustice? How do we win with politics and racism and and in the damage that's being done in marriages and at homes? It's that we learn to walk in light and to walk in love, to walk in obedience and to walk in the activity of God. That your light and love is not going to overcome anything, but God's light and love already has. Can I get an amen, church? Y'all are clapping too long. Hurry up, we're burning daylight. All right, so listen. He says, I want you to be learn to be the best lens you can be. Because listen, don't miss this. We walk connected to the word. And when we do, how we walk shines the light and love of God. Because here's what we need to know about where we walk. When you walk, there are people watching. When you walk, there are people following. Where you walk, it's like there's, the, you know, they see the mama duck and all the little ducklings go along with them. You've got people that follow you, your kids maybe your spouse, maybe your coworkers, they're watching you to find out how to walk. They're watching you to find out where to walk. They're watching you to see what to anchor their life to. They're watching, and you're going to create something behind you with your life. You're either going to create a legacy or you're going to create a vacancy. You're either going to create a legacy that points people to Jesus that will change them for eternity, or you are going to create a vacancy, a hole in somebody else's life because you are not shining the light and love of Jesus Christ. You're anchoring them to something less than. You're anchoring them to something that cannot provide you hope, that cannot provide you help. And it is so important, church, that we never, ever do that. We connect our life to the Word of God, which means we have to know the Word of God, church. It means I have to be in the word of God so that I can walk obedient to the word of God. And when I do, he says that when we walk in light and love, he says, I can know that my eternity is secure. And when we walk in light and we walk in love, we can help other people see the Jesus they need so their eternity is secure. That's how you overcome the world. We walk in him. And quarter four timer starts now. A new king means a new war. I was recently watching a Netflix documentary series on Alexander the Great. Um, been into that, love history, so I love that show. And Alexander the Great was, uh, man, he was on his way down just kicking King Xerxes' tail all the, across the empire of Persia on his way down to Egypt. And Darius, he's meeting with his advisors, and he's talking to his advisors, talking to his generals, and they're like, well, Alexander's a really strong warrior, man. He's super great at strategy, and he's just kicking our tail. You know what Darius told him? He said, listen, man, if you're explaining, you're losing. (laughs) And Alexander's working his way down, and he gets to Egypt, and Egypt is like, man, this dude's so bad, we just gonna surrender. So they had been serving King Darius, but now... They had a new king. And whenever you have a new king, you have a new war. Can I say the same thing that was true for Egypt is true for you, church? When you surrender to King Jesus, you have a new war. And you have a new enemy. The, word, the world declares that we fight against people, 
fight against armies, fight against your enemies, but the word declares something far different. See, the word changes what you fight, and the word says this in Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The word says we fight spiritual battles. The world, this world fights against flesh and blood in that they preach Stand up for what's yours. Can I say this, church? Stand up for what's yours is not a biblical perspective. It's an American perspective. It is not a biblical one. See, the Bible would say, and Jesus would say, if anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. What this practically means is, fellas, if your wife asks you to do the dishes, well, then clean the counters as well. <laughs> see, see we're, we're not fighting against people. We're fighting against the one who holds people captive. The word changes not just what you fight, but the word changes how you fight. See, the battles this word, this world wage requires weapons of death and destruction, but the battles that we fight require weapons of construction and of healing. This world's weapons tear people down, but our weapons build people up. The weapons this world use are death, and we speak life. So what are these weapons that we're supposed to use? Well, I would say this, church, the first thing, the word itself is a weapon. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But it's not just the word that's a weapon. Prayer is a weapon. See, it's a weapon. This is a weapon prayer that shakes the very strongholds of darkness. It does. But how many of us are going into battle not even utilizing any of our weapons? How many of us are fighting with one hand tied behind our back? Because we don't pray, we don't read God's word, we don't use it. Listen, if you're, you are in a war, stop fighting with one hand behind your back. Get in the fight, use your weapons. Communion with our Father, and in, more in particular, in his word, is a weapon. When we spend time with our Father, it changes who we are. It makes us more in tune with the spiritual battle that we're waging. It makes us more in tune with, with the church and what's taking place in the world, and it makes us more aware of what's just happening. It sobers us and it focuses us on the task that is at hand. Communion with our Father, it sustains us and it fills us. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am living water. There are stories all throughout history of great armies that were defeated. They were powerful, but they defeated because of lack of supplies and they had empty stomachs when they went to battle. They were defeated. How many of us are fighting a war not partaking of the bread of life. Communion with our Father is a weapon. Evangelism is a weapon. The lost came to salvation. All who are lost come to salvation. If they come to salvation, they come to salvation because they hear the good news. And they hear the good news. The good news comes to the lost on the backs of the saints. God uses people to expand his kingdom, and he wants to use you and we need to all be in the fight. That means we need to stop playing games and recognize that we are soldiers in a war. So this world, this, the, the word changes what you fight and it changes how you fight, but the word also changes why you fight. See, this world fights for kings, fights for people who are dumb. There are countless stories throughout history of men going, being sent off to war to fight and die for a king because he just got his feelings hurt. But we don't serve a king like that. See, we serve a king who sent his son down here to die for us. Hear me, church, that is a king worth fighting for, and that is a king that is worth dying for, should that be the cost. 
We fight for a king who fights for us. And I'm sure there's some of us in this room, though, because fighting is hard, that we're tired. We're spent. We feel like dropping our weapons and giving up because we feel like we're fighting a losing battle. Well, let me hear me in this. The word changes all of these things about the war. He changes your very war itself, but hear me. He changes the outcome of your war. See, you were once dead and dying. You were once separated from God. You were once destined for complete and total defeat. There was a Friday about 2,000 years ago that it looked like the only possible outcome was more defeat and more death. Because the son of man and God was dead in a tomb. It looked over. We looked defeated. But on Sunday, those women came to the grave and they discovered the best news that could ever be discovered because Jesus was not dead. He was alive. (laughs) Hear me, church. Hear me, church. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. But the truth is, the war was over before it began. Maybe you feel defeated. We're about to sing a song here in a second that says, I know how the story ends. It begins and it ends with, as Shane said, the word himself. Revelation 21. Five, three, six. And he said, was seated. He was seated on the throne and said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words that are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give him from a spring of water of life without payment. Church, the time's up. (laughs) The time is up. And I may lose this, but we have not lost the war. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to head out of here. God, thank you for today. We thank you, God, that we live in the victory of our great king. God, we thank you for all you've done for us, and we thank you that today we come, we celebrate, and we share the gospel. God, there may be somebody in this room that they want to know what it looks like to have that victory. God, I pray they would talk to us as soon as this service is over, because we would love to tell them what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, we love you, and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. I need you to do this Super Bowl-style, church. You are not dismissed. You are. Have a great day.